Section 66 of Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 3, Egypt, Africa, and Arabia, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 66. A Visit to King Moselekatse. 1829, by Anne Manning Rathbone. One day, towards the end of 1829, Moffat received two very unexpected visitors. Footnote. Robert Moffat, the well-known missionary. End footnote. They were chiefs from the court of a mighty king in the Far East, whose name was Moselekatse. He was quite beyond the range of ordinary travellers, but the rumour of his dark and terrible deeds has extended far beyond the precincts of the countries immediately surrounding his dominions, and he had heard somewhat of the white men, and wanted to know more about them. These visitors were entirely destitute of clothing, and were surprised to find it considered necessary. But with the good breeding that is a true mark of high birth and real politeness, were immediately willing to adopt whatever was thought seemly for them. They were shown every mark of attention which they received with a graceful ease that showed they were the nobles of the nation to which they belonged, though they dropped no hint of it themselves. Everything calculated to interest them was shown to them. The dwellings, the walls of the folds and gardens, the water-ditch conveying a large stream of water from the river, and the smith's forge filled them with admiration and astonishment, not of a vulgar, unintelligent kind but of minds capable of appreciating what was shown and explained to them for the first time. "'You are men. We are but children to you,' said they. "'Moselekatse must be told of these things.' While standing in the hall of Moffat's house, looking at the strange furniture of a civilized abode, one of them observed a small looking-glass on which he gazed with surprise and admiration. Mrs. Moffat put into his hand one which was considerably larger. He looked intently at his reflected countenance, and, never having seen it before, supposed it was one of his attendants on the other side, and abruptly put his hand behind it, telling him to be gone. But looking again at the same face, he cautiously turned it, and, seeing nothing, he returned the glass with great gravity to Mrs. Moffat, saying that he could not trust it. Nothing appeared to strike them so forcibly as the public worship in the chapel. They saw men behaving themselves with the utmost decorum. Mothers stilling their babes or carrying them out if they cried, and children sitting perfectly still and silent. The order and fervor which pervaded the services bewildered their minds, and they were surprised that the hymns they heard sung were not war songs. These chiefs told Moffat that they were under considerable doubt of being able to return home in safety, as they had heard that the Betuana tribes were plotting to waylay and destroy them, and they asked his advice. After consultation with Mrs. Moffat and Mr. Hamilton, he offered to accompany them as far as the Bahurutse country, from which they could proceed without difficulty to their own land and people. The strangers most gratefully accepted this kind offer, their eyes glistening with delight. A wagon was hired for their accommodation in addition to Moffat's own. The delightful results of Christian fellowship were apparent in the friendliness and generosity of the residents at the station in offering little gifts as keepsakes to their visitors, whom, in their unconverted state, they could only have cursed in their hearts and perhaps with their lips. Having obtained a sufficient number of volunteers to accompany him on what some thought a very hazardous journey, Moffat started with his grateful friends on the ninth of November. Though the road had its perils from wild beasts, there were none from the natives. 
Having safely conveyed his companions to the Bahurutsi, he was then about to take leave of them, but they so earnestly begged him to add to his kindness by accompanying them to their own country, that at length he consented. The country through which they now travelled was quite different from that which they had left. It was mountainous and wooded, and had numerous streams of excellent water, but the surrounding stillness was often broken by the lion's roar. Having reached the outposts of Moselekatsi's dominions, Moffat was again purposing to return home. But the two chiefs arose, and Umbate, the elder of them, laid his right hand on his shoulder and his left on his own breast, and said very earnestly, My father, you have been our guardian. We are yours. And will you leave us? Yonder dwells the great Moselekatsi, and how shall we approach his presence if you are not with us? If you love us still, save us for when we shall have told our news he will ask why our conduct gave you pain and induced your return. And before the sun goes down, we shall be ordered for execution because you are not with us. Look at me and my companion, and tell us, if you can, that you will not go, for we had better die here than in the sight of our people. He argued, but to no effect. Are you afraid? said the other. No, said Moffat. Then pursued Umbate. It remains with you to save our lives and our wives and children from sorrow. It must be owned that they were adepts in persuasion, and in short Moffat yielded to their great joy as well as to that of his own attendants. On the surface of the country through which they now travelled lay the ruins of innumerable towns, showing what disastrous wars must have raged to render them now without inhabitants. Heaps of stone and rubbish were mingled with human skulls which told their ghastly tale. Passing over some hills to the right, they fell into their surprise with Berend and a large hunting party, with whom had travelled a Wesleyan missionary named Archbell, who had gone on three days before to visit Moselekatse, who, however, had refused to see him. On approaching the capital, one of the chiefs went forward to appear before the king and pave the way for his companions. There, said Mbate, pointing to the crown, dwells the great king Pezulu, that is, king of heaven, the elephant the lion's paw, with many other sounding titles. Moffat, Mr. Archbell, and two others mounted their horses and rode directly to the town. On entering the great fold, which was capable of holding ten thousand head of cattle, they were rather taken by surprise to find it lined by eight hundred warriors, besides two hundred who were concealed on each side of the entrance as if in ambush. They were beckoned to dismount, which they did, holding the horses' bridles in their hands. The warriors of the gate instantly rushed in with hideous yells that frightened the horses, and then fell into rank with as much order as if they had been accustomed to European tactics. All was silent as the grave, while the men were motionless as statues. Eyes only were seen to move, and there was a rich display of fine white teeth. After some minutes of profound silence the war-song burst forth. There was harmony, it is true, but of a terrific kind especially when they imitated the groans of the dying and the yells and hissings of the conquerors. After another profound silence, during which the missionary still stood at pause, out marched the monarch from behind the lines, followed by a number of men bearing baskets and bowls of food. He came up to his visitors, and gave each a clumsy but hearty shake of the hand. He then turned to the food which had been placed at their feet, and politely invited them to partake of it. By this time the wagons appeared in the distance, and the missionaries having requested him to inform them where they should take up their quarters, he accompanied them, holding Moffat by the arm, though not in the most graceful way, yet with perfect ease and familiarity. 
The land is before you, said he heartily. You are come to your son. You may sleep where you please. When the moving houses, as he called the wagons, drew near, he grasped Moffat's arm very tightly, and, though himself the terror of thousands, looked on them with fear, as doubtful whether they were not living creatures. When the oxen were unyoked, he approached the wagons with the utmost caution, still holding Moffat with one hand and laying the other on his mouth in token of surprise. He examined them intently, especially the wheels, and could not think how the large band of iron surrounding the fellows of the wheel came to be all in one piece. Umbate stepped forward to explain. My eyes saw that very hand, said he, pointing to Moffat's, cut those bars of iron, take a piece off one end, and then join them as you see. Did he give medicine to the iron, asked the king in surprise. No, replied Umbate. He used nothing but fire, a hammer, and a chisel. Moselekatse then returned to the town, where the warriors still standing as he had left them received him with immense bursts of applause. Moselekatse did not fail to supply his visitors abundantly with meat, milk, and a harmless kind of beer. He seemed desirous to please and to appear to the best advantage. The following day he treated them to a grand public ball in their honor, and asked Moffat if he had seen anything equal to it in his own country. He afterwards said to him, My father, you have made my heart as white as milk. I cease not to wonder at the love of a stranger. You never saw me before, but you loved me more than my own people. You fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. And taking Moffat's right arm in his hand, that arm shielded me from my enemies. You did it to these two men. You clothed them. You fed them. You protected them. You did it unto me. Thus ended the Saturday of this eventful week. The following morning was marked by a melancholy display of the so-called heroism which prefers death to dishonor. The king gave a great feast. Many oxen had been slaughtered. Everybody was merry except one of his chief officers called an Intuna. This young man had been guilty of an unpardonable crime and was sentenced to immediate death by being thrown from a rock into a river full of crocodiles, which would devour him in an instant. There was not a tear in his bright black eye, but he looked very sad, while Moffat begged his life of the king. The Intuna knelt before him. Moselekatse said while everybody listened in the deepest silence, You are a dead man, but I shall do today what I never did before. I spare your life for the sake of my friend and father, pointing to Moffat. I know his heart weeps at the shedding of blood. For his sake I spare your life. He has traveled from a far country to see me, and he has made my heart white. But he told me that to take away life is an awful thing and can never be repaired. I wish him, when he returns to his own home, to return with a heart as white as he has made mine. I spare you for his sake, for I love him, and he has saved the lives of my people. But you must be degraded for life. You must no more associate with the nobles of the land, nor enter into the assemblies of the princes of the people. Go to the poor of the field, and let your companions henceforth be the inhabitants of the deserts. The sentence passed. The pardoned man was expected to bow in grateful adoration to him who he was accustomed to look upon and exalt in songs, only applicable to one whom belongs universal dominion. But no. Holding his hands clasped on his bosom, he replied, O king, afflict not my heart. I have merited thy displeasure. Let me be slain like the warrior. I cannot live with the poor. 
and raising his hand to the ring he wore on his brow, he continued, How can I live among the dogs of the king, and disgrace these badges of honor which I won among the spears and shields of the mighty? No, I cannot live. Let me die, O Pezulu. His request was granted, and his hands tied erect over his head. Moffat's exertions to save his life were in vain. He disdained the boon on the conditions offered, preferring to die with the honors he had won at the point of the spear, which even the act that condemned him did not tarnish. He was led forth, a man walking on each side, till he reached the top of a precipice over which he was precipitated into the deep pool of the river beneath, where the crocodiles, accustomed to such meals, were waiting to devour him. End of section 66 Recording by Philip Gould